0: Please turn to Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine. You're there, say praise the Lord. Probably the greatest conversion that the church has ever seen was the Apostle Paul. And other than Jesus Christ, He's probably the greatest man who ever walked this earth. We're going to see His life in the book of Acts beginning in the ninth chapter. We've already seen Him before, but we're going to see His conversion here in the ninth chapter. His name was Paul or Saul. Hebrew name Saul. Roman name Paul. Greatest man ever converted, I believe, to the church. Brother Dice used to say this about Saul. He said the conversion of the Apostle Paul or Saul would be like converting the whole United States Army. That it would take basically the whole United States Army to do what that man did in the kingdom of God. If you can imagine the influence of this man, I would just put it to you so you can understand. It would be like converting all of Odessa, Texas. Over 100,000 people. But I think his influence would probably be even greater than that. He wrote over half the New Testament. And people are still being saved today as a result of his writings of Scripture. He was an awesome, awesome man. But before his conversion, the Bible tells us in verse 1, what he was doing, and he did this because he thought he was doing God a service, and that is to persecute the church. He wasn't doing this because he was a bad man per se. Do you understand what I'm trying to say here? His persecution of the church was because he was trying to save what he believed to be the faith of God and the faith in God at the time. So it wasn't he was just mean. He was really doing what he thought was the will of God. So if you look at verse 1 of chapter 9 of Acts, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogue, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand, and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call On thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, hast sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was saw certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, that He is the Son of God. But all that heard Him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priest? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ or very Messiah. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying away was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem." And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessing to be upon the reading of your word. We thank you for your presence today. We give you all glory, honor, and praise, and we exalt you and we thank you in advance for what you will do here. In Jesus' name, Amen. Brother Patrick, will you come in for a moment, please. Praise the Lord. God is good. Alright, look at verse 1 again. The Bible says, "...And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord..." Thank you, brother. "...went unto the high priest..." We've already seen Saul in the previous chapters persecuting the church. And in chapter 9, the Bible tells us that he is continuing to do this. He's continuing to breathe out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Now, what we need to understand about this man Saul at this time, he is not placing a curse of God on the people. He is cussing them. When it says that he's breathing out, or yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, he is cussing them. He is very, very angry with them. He is threatening them. He's cussing them. The big thing, big difference between cussing and cursing, I don't know if you know that. Some people hear somebody say a bad word or or, words that they shouldn't say. They say, stop cursing. But that's not a curse. That's cussing. Saul in this passage is not cursing. He's cussing. But while he's cussing, he's bringing a curse on himself. You can cuss me. You can even try to put the devil on me. And I don't have a problem because I can go to God and I can ask God to deliver me. Okay? I can ask God to deliver me from you and I can ask God to deliver me from the devil. But if God ever curses you, who will deliver you? I uh, was telling my wife the other morning, you know, I was, you know how it is when you get into warfare and you get in battle and and you examine your life you examine yourself and your walk with God and things and i was just telling her you know <clears throat> the main concern that i have is that that i have a curse of God on my life and that might be shocking to some of you that you know why would pastor think he's got a curse of God in his life but i'm going to tell you something when you go through a lot of warfare uh i don't know if i can explain it to you but that's just an examination of myself by myself. I just want to be sure I don't have a curse of God on my life. See, the devil can be coming against me. I don't have a problem with that. A person can come against me. I don't have a problem with that. But if God is cursing me, if I'm not right with God and I'm bringing a curse of God on my life, then I've got a big problem. So I told my, my wife the other morning, I said, I'm, I'm just praying to God that I haven't done something in my life that has brought a curse of God on my life. No, you know, there's is there any disobedience in my life? Is there some violation of scripture in my life that has brought the curse of God on me? Because if the curse of God is on me, who can deliver me? And I believe the Lord heard that because I went out, I did a I jog, jogged a mile and I was on my way back home walking. Back home and as I was walking down the road, I heard the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord says, I have redeemed you from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for you. And I threw up my hands and I give God praise today because or that, right there as I was walking home, I gave God the praise because He heard my question. Do I have a curse of God on my life? And the Lord says, no, I've redeemed you from the curse. You do not have my curse. I don't know about you, (laughs) but I know about me. And to hear God come to me like that, to take time for God, just to come down and talk to me like a friend and say, you're not cursed by me. That means a lot to me. Because I want to walk with God. And I don't want to have God's curse. And I don't want to have God's disfavor in my life. And so to question that and to examine my life that way is a good thing. But, you know, until I know from the Lord that I'm not, then I'm going to be struggling with that. And the Lord came down as I was walking. He took the time and He said, I redeemed you from the curse. You're not under my curse. Now, I thank God because I'm free today because I'm not under the curse. I might be under attack from the enemy. I may be cussed by people, but I'm not cursed by God. If I was cursed by God today, who could deliver me? There's nobody in this church that could deliver me. You could come pray for me. You could lay hands on me all morning long. But if the curse of God is on my life, you cannot deliver me. Okay? So when this man, Saul, is threatening, he's yet threatening, he's yet breathing out threats against the church he is cussing the church, okay, with language. He, in the same time cussing the church, he's bringing a curse of God on him because this is God's church. So cussing by him is bringing a curse of God on Paul. And Paul needs to be delivered by God himself. God needs to be. God needs to step into this man and save this man. Because if God doesn't step in for this man and save this man, this man is lost. He's cursed. Because he's persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. So do you understand where I'm going here today? Some of you today will say, Pastor, is it possible that I could have a curse on my life? Yeah, it is a possible thing. Until you go to God and ask God to forgive you. Until you examine your life. And you say, Lord, is a curse? if I brought something in my life, is there a curse in my life today that I brought by violation of Scripture or disobedience of the Word of God? If I've done that, Lord, I repent of that. And I know, you, I know you have redeemed me from the curse of the law, but I'm going to examine myself because I don't want a curse from God in my life. You with me? So, anyway, to make a long story short, this is where the Apostle Paul was. He was cussing, but he wasn't cursing. He wasn't going from city to city calling a curse of God down upon these people. He was threatening them. He was cussing them, all right? He was taking them up to the Sanhedrin court in Jerusalem, and there he was having them whipped. They were being beaten. 39 stripes laid upon their back. And as the Apostle Paul was having them whipped, you know, again, he thinks he's doing God a service. he doesn't realize he's bringing the curse of God on, him, on his own head because he's fighting God. He thinks he's doing God his service. He takes Him up to Jerusalem and they are beating these Christians with the cat of nine tails, with uh, 39 stripes. That's how they whipped Him. And the whole time that they were being whipped, not one of these Christians were blaspheming the name of God. Not one of them were would curse God or would curse the name of Jesus or would blaspheme the name of Jesus. So as he's cussing them, he's bringing a curse on his own head from God, he can't bring those people to a place where they will curse the name of Jesus. He can't bring them to a place where they will blaspheme the name of Jesus no matter how hard he beats them, no matter how hard he whips them. He sees these people saying faithful to Jesus the Nazarene. And he doesn't understand what's going on here. He saw Stephen being stoned to death, rocks in the eyes, rocks in the ears, rocks in the mouth, crushed skull, crushed bones. He saw Stephen praying for the forgiveness of those that were persecuting him. He heard Stephen say that he saw the heaven open and he saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And I explain what that meant. He heard this man die with a prayer of forgiveness on his lips. So that even if he took them to a place of killing them, he still could not bring them to a place where he was. They refused to deny Jesus Christ, and they prayed for their enemies. And this he could not understand. How these people could continue to be faithful to Jesus Christ, even to the point of being whipped and to the point of dying a martyr's death for this man. And in his mind, Jesus is a false Messiah. In Jesus, in his mind, Jesus is, has set up a false religion that is contrary to the faith of the scripture. That's where he is. So, In his mind, he feels like he's got light. In his mind, he feels like he's the one with light, and these Christians are the ones who are in darkness. So he feels like as he does this, that he's walking along, and he's walking in light, and everything that he's doing, is he's doing it out of service to God, and he, he feels like he's in the will of God doing what he's doing. And all of a sudden, something's fixing to change. Something's fixing to happen in his life. It's going to bring so so much total confusion in his mind. He's going to walk in total confusion. He's going to walk in helplessness. He's going to get to a place in his life that he had never been in his life. And that means helpless. He was raised in Judaism. He was full of his religion. And he's going to find out that his religion is outdated. And he's fixing to start over as a brand new baby again. Saul persecuting the church brings the Pharisee element into the persecution. The Sadducees were already involved in persecuting the church. Peter, John standing before them, the lame man that had been healed by Jesus Christ. They threw him in jail, they beat them, etc. So the Sadducees already had a hand in persecuting the church, but now... Saul, who is a Pharisee of the Pharisees, brings the Pharisee element into the persecution and joins the Sadducees in this persecution against the church. What you have here is a religious persecution, not a civil authority. You do not have the civil authority or government persecuting the church until right after the book of Acts. All the way through the book of Acts, the persecution of the church, the whipping of the saints, the killing of the saints was done by the organized church or organized religion, not by the civil government. You have to add another chapter to the book of Acts to get into the time when the civil government begins to persecute the church and that's during the time of Nero. Nero sets Rome on fire. He blames the Christians for setting Rome on fire. And as a result of that, persecution begins to break out upon the church from the civil government. And it continued to persecute the church all the way to 315 under Constantine. Civil government. So at this point, it's just the religious authorities and not the civil authorities that are persecuting the church. You understand what I'm telling you today? And it's always been like that. You can study church history and you will see that that's the way it's been. The greatest force against the church is the organized church. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. When you come into the church the of living God, the body of Christ, you're baptized in His name and filled with the Holy Ghost, the persecution that will come against you and come against the church and come against this church will be organized religion. You understand that? All through church history it was that way. Even through the times of the Inquisition, Roman Catholicism. By the way, Roman Catholicism has no doctrine that brings you to salvation. None. And Roman Catholicism, 1500s up to the 1800s during the Inquisition, killed thousands and thousands and thousands upon Protestants in the name of Catholicism. Now, I will tell you today, I'm not a Protestant, nor are you. You're not a Protestant. Okay? Alright? You are Jesus' name, Holy Ghost filled people. You are part of the church. So you're not Protestant. You're not Catholic. You are part of the church of the living God. You are part of the body of Christ. But I will tell you, from the 1500s up to the 1800s, Catholicism had thousands upon thousands of Protestants martyred. They killed them in the name of their faith. You understand? There is no doctrine of salvation in Catholicism. There is no doctrine that they preach to you that would bring you into a saving experience with Jesus Christ. And I'll also tell you this, that Protestants come way short of what the Bible tells you is required for New Testament salvation. You understand what I'm saying today? So you're not a Protestant and you're not a Catholic. But, the true church of Jesus Christ through the years have been persecuted not only by Catholicism, but the true church of Jesus Christ has also been persecuted through the years by the Protestants. And I'm talking to you, the true church. They have fought the Jesus' name, Holy Ghost, one God people. That's just the way it's been through the years, alright? Protestant fights the church. And Catholicism fights the church. And through history, that's the way it's been. You understand that? Say amen. Amen. So when we come to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, we see Saul, he is a Pharisee. He is a part of organized religion that's persecuting the church. And he thinks he's doing it in the name of the Lord. Even men who at one time stood behind pulpits who took strong stands okay, against compromise, against apostasy, strong stands against Catholicism, strong stands against having anybody on their platform who were apostate men like Billy Graham if you were to listen to Billy Graham in his early years in preaching, you would think you would listen to a man that was a Pentecostal preacher. The man was strong. He, he took a public stand against Catholicism. He took a public stand against apostates. He said they could not be a part of his his group. Y'all with me today? And you can go on the internet and you can, and I'm not trying to defame the man, I'm just telling you his policies. You can go on the internet and you will find out that he changed his policy concerning Catholicism. Okay? He changed, at one time he was against the World Council of Churches. He would have nothing to do with the World Council of Churches. But over time, Billy Graham changed his policy and he began to work with the World Council of Churches. The World Council of Churches is is basically the foundation for the one world church system. So at one time, Billy Graham took a stand against Catholicism. He took a stand against apostates. He took a stand against the World Council of Churches. But over time, he got sucked into this. And when he would go from city to city to city, he would look at everybody that was there. It didn't matter what, if they were Catholics or Protestants of any kind. or He would just we just work together here. So he began to compromise these stands. And you can go on the internet and you can look at this. Okay, kind of makes me wonder how a man of God could have so many doors open for him all over the world. In fact, it kind of makes me wonder why President Obama, when Obama became President of the United States, ask Billy Graham if he could come see him. And Billy Graham, at the first, said, I don't have time to do it at this point. So they stayed at him and after him. And when Obama was in that area, he called him up, said, I want to come and visit you. Can I come and see you? Well, that's very strange to me. Because if if you're really a true man of God... Why is it that there's so much desire of world leaders to want to be involved with you? Okay. And I do know that he has um, made a public declaration, and I'm not going to say that, that it's it's not true. I'm not going to say that uh, his denial is a false denial, but I will tell you that it was at one time he had his name listed as one of the famous Freemasons of the world the Freemasons had him listed as one of the famous Freemasons of the world. And when he was questioned about his position on Freemasonry, by the way, in case you don't know about Freemasonry, Freemasonry believes in many gods. Freemasonry denies the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. It relies on works salvation. And the Freemasons had Billy Graham listed as a Freemason until he was questioned about it. He denies it today. I'm not saying that his denial is false, but I'm just telling you it's odd to me that at one time his name was on the list of the famous Freemasons who denied Jesus Christ, His deity, and His blood atonement. Okay, I'm telling you, he's denied it. He said he's not a Freemason. But how in the world can a man have all these doors open up like he did? Thank God at least his son takes against uh, takes a stand against Islam publicly took a stand against Islam so he was not allowed to pray to pray at a national meeting you know thank God for that are y'all here right now But I remember after 9/11 that Billy Graham sat on the platform with Islamic leader a Muslim leader And I thought to myself, boy, you talk about ecumenicalism. You talk about a man like Billy Graham. Let me tell you something. I would not be on the same platform with a Muslim. As far as if I was in a meeting I was going to speak there and the Muslim was going to follow me and I was going to speak and then the Muslim would follow me or I would follow the Muslim. There is no way I would be on that platform. But he had no problem with it whenever 9-11 took place. So... I'm, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm telling you this for a reason. I do think it is kind of unusual, though, that Franklin Graham is a buddy of TBN. That he's such a big friend of TBN. You know who TBN is, right? Uh, Paul and Jan Crouch? I think that's extremely, extremely Unusual that He's such a friend of theirs. Because that that system there is full of apostasy. Why am I doing this this morning? Some of you are saying, well, Pastor, boy, you're really stepping on a limb and talking about things like this, you know, and saying things that you're saying here. I know I am. Why would I say that? Because you as the body of Christ need to realize that the apostate Christendom is as much as much a part of the world system as the world itself. Apostate Christendom is as much a part of the false religious system today as one world governments and one world economies. Did you catch that? So you have to be careful... As a, as a believer, a New Testament believer, that you don't get sucked up into it, wow. And, and let me give credit where credit's due. Thank God for the fact that when Billy Graham stands up behind a pulpit and he doesn't do it anymore, but in the years that he did, thank God, I can say this about the man, he did preach the Bible. Yes sir I can tell you that to a point. But he didn't tell those people they needed to be born again, baptized in His name, filled with the Holy Ghost. And in fact, he didn't tell him to go to a church, a Bible preaching church. Just basically the church of your choice. So I can tell you up to a point, he did preach the Bible, so I can give him that much credit, alright? But you need to realize, as a church today. That when you come across people who claim to be members of the church of Jesus Christ, you need to realize that a lot of them are not a part of the church just They're a part of the world system. They're just as much as part of the world system as Russia or communism. You with me today? They're just as much as part of the world system as the unbeliever. In fact, they are more against the true church of Jesus Christ than the world is. And I believe in the end times and the persecution that will come against the church it will start with the religious systems who call themselves church. You understand what I'm telling you? And it'll be followed up by the civil government. The Bible is clear on that. So you need to realize as a church that a lot of these systems and organizations and, and even preachers today, they're apostate. They fought the church of the living God. Amen now so you may not like that but it's the truth and I personally believe that the charismatic people or the charismatic leadership I should say the charismatics are are going to be the ones who will be involved with producing the antichrist or I should say the false prophet they will support the false prophet you understand And for Billy Graham to associate himself with Catholicism, basically be okay with it now. At one time he wasn't, but for him to do that now, basically he is siding with a system along with the charismatic movement and Roman Catholicism and unconverted Protestantism that will produce the false prophet. Go with me today. Okay. So you understand that I'm up here this morning and I'm not up here just to bash people and defame people's character, but you can go and you can study Catholicism. There's no doctrine in Catholicism that brings you to salvation. None. Protestantism is hugely negligent and hugely apostate. It has become mostly a social organization now. And um, the charismatic movements that primarily are, are you know, promoted by Jan Crouch and Paul Crouch, are as apostate as they can possibly be. And I'm not just saying that. I'm telling you, get informed. Get informed. You think I would stand up here and just, just defame somebody's character and, and say something you know just to be mean and malicious? Absolutely not. What I'm telling you is the truth. So when I come to the to Saul, and I see Saul persecuting the church, he's doing it in the name of God, he feels like he's doing God a service, and I see this man, you know, as a picture of organized religion has always fought the body of Jesus Christ. Always. That's where the challenges come. And then after the book of Acts, then Nero and up to 315, up to Constantine, then you had the civil authorities persecuting the church. But it was the religious, or organized religion, or organized church that persecuted the church. you understand that? Okay. So Saul, who is Saul? Who is this man? This man, Galatians 1.15, tells us, Uh, The book of Acts is not a biography of Saul, and it is not a biography of Peter. It is the works of the Spirit of God in the church. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. Now, We need to pray for Billy Graham. We need to pray for Franklin Graham. We need to pray for TBN. We need to pray for Roman Catholicism, or those that are in it, I should say, that they come into the church of Jesus Christ. So, you know, you need to understand where I'm coming from. We want these people to be saved. Okay, 115. Uh, Paul says this, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace... To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. The Bible says that God separated him from his mother's womb and called him by his grace. But this man is persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. But yet the Bible says, Paul says, God had his hand on me from birth. And he did. Because nobody, nobody could do what Saul did at that time. There was no man on the planet that could accomplish what Saul accomplished. God had His hand on that man from birth. You say, how is that possible? How is it that this man Saul, who God knew was going to be converted... God knew Saul was going to be converted. He knew Saul was going to come into church. But yet, God allowed Saul to kill Christians. If God separated from his mother's womb and called him by His grace, then how is it that God would allow him to kill the very Christians that he would become a part of? Why didn't God step in and stop Saul from murdering the Christians? Why not? God knew he was going to be converted and from his birth, God had His hand on him. That means his whole life. God used this and this and this and we'll talk about that and all these things in just a moment. He, God used so many things in the Apostle Paul's life to make him the man that he would become. And he did it from his mother's womb. But he allowed Saul to persecute the church and to kill the believers and to whip, to have them whipped and to compel them to blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. He was like a wild animal who had tasted blood. He couldn't get enough blood of the Christians. He made havoc of the church. And God didn't stop him. Why didn't God stop Saul, if God knew Saul was going to be converted, why didn't He stop him from killing the Christians? Why didn't He stop him from persecuting the Christians? Because God recognizes freedom of choice. And God gave Saul a free will. Just like He gave you a free will. So Saul could choose against Jesus Christ And he did. He was one of the greatest enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ that the world has ever seen. He chose to be an enemy of Jesus Christ. He persecuted the church of Jesus Christ by choice. He exercised His will to kill them. And they exercised their will to die The Christian exercised his will to die for Jesus Christ. Saul exercised his will to kill them. So both exercised their will. One to kill and one to die for. God didn't stop Saul from doing what he was doing because he gives you and I a will to choose. God's not going to make any of you live for him. He's not going to make me live for Him. He's not going to make you live for Him. He's given you a choice. He's given you a will. You can say, yes, I'll die for Him or you can choose to kill the Christian because He's given you that will. You say, God, stop me. No, He's given you a will. You have to exercise your will. You have to exercise your choice either for God or against God. And Saul was the the greatest enemy of Jesus Christ up to that point, nobody like Him. And God let him exercise His choice and exercise His will to fight against the church. The reason why God does that is because if He stopped Paul, He'd have to stop everybody that's in sin. God would have to step in and stop anybody that murdered before they murdered Him. God would have to stop them before they murdered you understand? Can you imagine that? Before anybody did anything wrong, God would have to override their will, step in and stop them, keep them from doing anything wrong. No. God doesn't work that way. What I'm telling you, if He, if he stopped Saul from killing the church, He would have to stop others from committing murder today. That's not the way He works. He gave man a will and a choice to exercise. And that's what He did with Saul. So at one point, even though God knew that Saul was going to be the apostle that he became, He let him kill the Christians. He let them murder them. He let this man, who was going to be the greatest preacher in the church, to fight the church. He allowed it all. God had His hand in the whole situation. Say amen. And God was still in control. Doesn't mean that God, you know, that it was God's will for people to die, but it was man's will against the will of God that brought it. You understand what I'm trying to show you here today? But the Bible says, Paul says, from birth, God separated him from the womb and called him. God separated him, called him from the womb by his grace from the womb. That means God's hand was on that man from birth. And if you study the life of the Apostle Paul, you will find out some very interesting things. He was born in Tarsus. That's why they call him Saul of Tarsus. Born in Tarsus. A Jewish young boy. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Hebrew nature. His mom and dad were Jews. Hebrews. I don't know what took them to Tarsus. Tarsus, the capital city of Silesia it was a Greek city with Greek culture, with a huge Greek college there. A Hellenistic Jew. That means that Saul was touched by Greek culture and Greek influence, raised in a Greek city. The Greek culture put its stamp on Saul. So that Saul, in that way, was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a part of the dispersion. He lived in Tarsus as a boy, not in Jerusalem as a boy. So, watch this. This is interesting. God, from His birth, had His hand on him. Had His hand on His mom and dad going to Tarsus, a Greek city surrounded by Greek culture. Making them Hellenistic, which means they could speak the Greek language. God had His hand on them living in that city. The Greeks put their stamp on Him. Okay? Now watch this. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. Some people believe that Stephen was raised in Tarsus as well. Some people believe and teach that Stephen went to the college of Tarsus. He was a Hellenistic Jew. He hadn't, Stephen never went to sat at the feet of a rabbi in Jerusalem. He was a Hellenistic Jew, right? You with me so far? And these Hellenistic Jews are the ones that are showing the way to the church of going and preaching the gospel to the world. And it starts with Stephen. There's going to be a breaking off from the temple and a breaking off from Judaism and going and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's going to come as a result of Stephen. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew. It's believed he was raised in the same city of Tarsus. So what I'm trying to tell you is this, is that Saul was a Hellenistic Jew. He could speak Greek. He knew Greek culture. He was raised in the Greek environment. He was aware of the Greek versatility. Be versatile in what you believe. Be versatile in what you do. Greek versatility. The Greek culture had its stamp on Paul. That was God's hand in his life. A Hellenistic Jew. The Sadducees were more aligned with the Hellenistic Jew. The Pharisee was more aligned with the Jerusalem Jew or the Hebrews. The Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now watch this. I'm going somewhere with this. So from a baby, God set it up to where His mother and father went to Tarsus in Silesia, a Greek city full of Greek culture and environment and versatility. This mother and father of Paul bought their Roman citizenship. Now, Roman citizenship, you could buy it but it would take more money than this whole church has. And when I say this whole church, I'm not talking about it in the church account. I'm talking about all your money, everybody's money in this whole church. If we were, if we were to get together and take all the money that every one of us had, we sold everything, we sold our houses, our cars, everything, we liquidated everything, and we brought the money, you couldn't buy your own one Roman citizenship. Roman citizenship was extremely, extremely expensive. Mom and dad of this little boy named Saul was extremely wealthy. They purchased their Roman citizenship. And to be a Roman citizen was to say something in that culture. If you were a Roman citizen, they couldn't beat you if they beat you as a Roman citizen, the people that beat you would be condemned to death. And that's why the Apostle Paul, when he's over in Philippi, and they beat him and put him in prison, he said, I didn't know it was lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen. When they heard that, they tried to get him out the back door. Say, no, you beat me publicly. You're going to face this publicly. They knew. See, you couldn't beat a Roman citizen. Uh, there, there was something extremely valuable to be a Roman citizen. Paul didn't buy his. Paul was freeborn. Mom and Dad bought theirs. But Paul was a freeborn Roman citizen. So you couldn't beat a Roman citizen. You could not crucify a Roman citizen. And so, And also as a Roman citizen, you could appeal to Caesar at any trial. Just because you are a Roman citizen, if they brought you to trial and you stood there in trial, if the verdict went against you, you could say, I appeal to Caesar and they would put you on a boat and send you straight to Caesar and you would stand before Caesar because you were a Roman citizen. They couldn't beat you. They could not crucify you. And you could appeal directly to Caesar anytime. So God, look at this these wealthy parents of Saul purchased their Roman citizenship, he a Roman citizen by birth, God had His hand in that so that Paul was touched by the Latin culture. The facility of the Latin culture. The versatility of the Greek culture so that Paul, whatever situation he found himself in, because he was a Roman citizen, he had rights. And those rights allowed him to go and preach the Gospel all over the world as a Roman citizen. He could appeal to Caesar. They, you know what I'm saying? He could, oh, he used these things. He used his Roman citizenship to help him spread the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God had His hand on him from birth. Had him born to wealthy parents in the Greek culture. Of Tarsus and and had them uh, purchase the Roman citizen, so he would be a freeborn Roman citizen, so he could spread the gospel and use that to his benefit. And then the Bible says he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, which means even though the Greek culture has put a stamp on him and he's a Roman citizen, he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees. That means he was trained by mom and dad even though that Greek stamp was upon him and you couldn't get it off of him. Mom and Dad trained him in the Old Testament. Mom and Dad, at five years of age, at five years of age, those little Jewish boys would learn to read the Scripture. At five years of age, they learned to quote the book of Deuteronomy. Before five years of age, they heard their mom and dad quote, "Hero O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Over them in that crib. They saw the mezuzah on the outside of their doorstep there with the name of God upon it with Scripture in it. He was raised in the Scriptures. And by the age of 13, he could quote, The law, the first five books of the Old Testament, along with the Psalms by heart. And possibly by 13, some of them were able to quote the whole Old Testament verbatim. By 13. Think about that. You know, we. Can't you get your memory verse? You tell your kid, yeah, one memory verse. By 13, on some accounts, they had the whole Bible memorized, the Old Testament memorized, man. You get that. Say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And after you've gone, not just the Bible training, but you would go, and I don't have time to tell you, I mean, it's, it would blow your mind if I were to take the time today and tell you everything that those Jewish boys would have learned at school and the School of Tarsus, okay. It just—I was sitting there reading these things off what they had to learn. It would blow your mind. You think school's hard today? It's a piece of cake. It's nothing compared to what they learned, right? I'm talking about it. That—that that was in the School of Tarsus. Aside from his re- religious training at home with mom and dad, at 13 years of age he would have been done with the School of Tarsus. At 13 years of age, they sent him to Jerusalem. And there he sat. And how do I know 13? The Bible doesn't tell me 13. But at 13, that's when they went off to the college in Jerusalem. If you wanted to be a rabbi. So at 13 years of age, this Hebrew of the Hebrews, who had been trained in the Scripture, who had memorized most of the Old Testament by 13, now he's graduated, if you will, from the school of Tarsus as a boy. He's going to go up to Jerusalem and become a son of the law. He goes and the Bible says that He sat in the book of Acts. It tells us He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Mom and Dad, like this, we don't want you completely absorbed into Greek culture. We don't want you to become a Greek. We want you to stay in the faith of Judaism. You hearing me? You're a Hebrew of the Hebrew, so we've got to put the Hebrew stamp on you. And they sent Saul at 13 years of age over to Jerusalem to the greatest teacher of the day. His name was Gamaliel. Gamaliel, Jewish writers say Gamaliel was one of the top seven rabbis of the world. In fact, he is only one of seven men that were ever called Rabban. Rabbi is one thing. They call you a rabbi. That's one thing. You have had major training as a rabbi. Okay. But if you ever get to the level of a, a Rabban, Rabban, that is a high level master. It's like saying he is the Grand Master of the Old Testament. And so Gamaliel was a Rabbon. And not Rambon, Rabbon. He was a, the Grand Master of Old Testament theology in the College of Jerusalem. When you study the history behind Gamaliel, you will find out he was the grandson of Hillel. Gamaliel also was the president, the Nassi, of the college in Jerusalem. And so at 13 years of age, Saul having graduated from the school in Tarsus, being stamped by Greek culture, a Roman citizen, mom and dad, sends him to the school or the college in Jerusalem, and he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest master of Old Testament theology that you could find in that day. And he would have sat there approximately four years at the feet of Gamaliel and he would have been taught Old Testament theology by that man. He had the wealth, he had the money to do it, he had the backing of his mom and dad to do it, and then from there after getting his uh, recognition, uh, as a rabbi, having sat at the feet of Gamaliel, he would go under a real strict time of questioning from the Sanhedrin to make sure that he qualified for the position. So it was major. This was not little stuff. This was major. And so after four years, I say he's about 18 years of age. He's not only studied the Old Testament, he raised most of the Old Testament. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel for about four years, the greatest theologian in that day. He would have learned the Mishnah. You all with me? The oral law by age 10. The Mishnah, the oral law, is supposed to interpret the written law. okay? I don't what would later be known as the Mishnah. These are, they call it the oral law, the traditions of the elders. This didn't come from God, it came from men. but he would have learned the Mishnah by 10, and by 15, he would have learned the whole Talmud. Okay? After he's gone through all of this training, now we've got the Greek culture, we've got the Roman culture, we've got Greek versatility, we've got Roman facility, and we've got Hebrew tenacity in the man. Now, at around 18, 19 years old, after having set at the feet of Gamaliel, being trained by this man, he would go back to Tarsus, and every young man would have married at, by 18 years years of age. So the Apostle Paul would have been married by 18 and I believe he was a married man because he was a part, I believe, of the Sanhedrin court. For him to get the letters, the authorization from the priest, as the Bible tells us in the ninth chapter, tells you that he was connected to the Sanhedrin. And in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin court, you have to be married. Okay. So his family over there in Tarsus, he would have gone back at 18 after setting the feet of Gamaliel. He would have married. He would have found his wife. They would have been married in Tarsus. His family would have been there. Mom and Dad would have still been there. His brothers and sisters, no doubt some of them were there. Later, we'll find them in the book of Acts in in Jerusalem. And there he was. And this was God's hand upon the man from birth. Greek culture, Roman culture, and Hebrew culture on the man. Trained as a rabbi. Get in your mind. This man here, Going from house to house. Dragging believers out of those houses and killing them. Persecuting everyone that would call upon the name of Jesus. An enemy of Jesus Christ. Get in your mind this man wearing his prayer shawl. Get in your mind this man walking along this long blue robe Pharisee. A Pharisee of the Pharisee, Wearing his prayer shawl as he's going down Bah! I didn't mean to do that. Lord, forgive me. Walking down the road in his prayer shawl, with his this is a palit, a prayer shawl. He's walking down the road. Road. He's got this blue cord hanging off the down the side of the fringes. He's got a box on his forehead. That box is called a phylactery. And in that phylactery are placed four Scriptures. One of those Scriptures, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord in this little box on His forehead. He's, he literally has it wrapped around His forehead. What He's saying is, I've got the Word of God in my mind. If it wasn't on His forehead, it would have been on His arm next to His heart. I've got the Word of God in my heart. So picture in your mind this highly educated and highly trained rabbi walking down the road, going to Damascus with authorization from the high priest to drag people back to Jerusalem 150 miles away, going up to Damascus, Syria. Dragging them back into Jerusalem, going everywhere he could to find them to get these people. They've been scattered. They've been dispersed. So he's not just going to persecute them in Jerusalem, but he's going to travel 150 miles over into Damascus, Syria, the oldest city of the world. Picture in your mind. He's walking down the road with letters of authorization in His hand to persecute these people that call upon the name of Jesus. He believes He's in the light. He believes that He's got the light of God. He believes He's doing the will of God at this time. So picture Him in your mind walking along with that box on His forehead or on His arm and His prayer shawl. Long blue robe, Pharisee with those cords when the Bible says the woman touched the hem of his garment, it, it didn't mean that he touched the bottom of his dress or his skirt. It meant that she grabbed a hold of the zitzit, the tassels. So picture in your mind this man saw walking down the road. And he's a, he's a rabbi, so he would be walking in front of the rest of the people. The, Sadduce, uh, the Sanhedrin police force are with him. He's walking in front of them. They are walking with Him. He's got the letters. And all along the way, He's got plenty of time to think about what He has experienced. He's got plenty of time to think about Stephen dying and Stephen preaching and Stephen praying. He's got time to think about all of those believers in the New Testament church that He tried to bring them to a point of blaspheming Christ, whipping them and and killing them. He's thinking about these people. They would not blaspheme the name of Jesus. They would not turn their backs on Jesus. They would not reject Jesus Christ. All of this is going on on the inside of Him. Turmoil on the inside of Him. And the Spirit of God is convicting Him. The Spirit of God is drawing Him. The Spirit of God is working on Him at that same time. And so as he walks along, he's got plenty of time to think about all of these things. And God is dealing with his, his life and his conscience is bothering him. And so he goes along ahead of them 150 miles away. That would take you at least a week to walk. Jewish rabbis do not ride on the back of horses. If they ride anything, they ride donkeys. And if they don't ride a donkey, they walk. They walk. Everywhere they go. The Apostle Paul is willing to walk or travel by donkey 150 miles away. When he will become the Apostle to the Gentiles, he will travel over 12,000 miles, land and sea, to spread the Gospel. So the hand of God has been upon this man from birth. The Greek culture's on him. Hellenistic culture. The Hebrew, the Hebrews is upon him. The Roman culture has got his handprint on him. God has set this man up for a particular time in history. And he's persecuting. He's killing the church, killing the believers. He's an enemy of Jesus Christ. And he's walking down the road and he's got all of these credentials. And he's thinking he's doing God a service. It's God's will all this. He feels like that he's preserving the temple. He's preserving that old Mosaic economy. He's doing this for God. He's got to wipe out everybody on the planet who names the name of Jesus Christ. Everyone on the planet must die. This Nazarene, this despised carpenter, this man who in his mind has set up a false religious system in uh, contrary to the God of Israel. And so here he goes along the road, and he's thinking about all of these things. And he's confused. And conviction has got a hold of his heart. And the Bible says as he's traveling, and these men behind him, all of a sudden on the road to Damascus. Now, if you ever got to Damascus, you would find out not only is it the oldest city, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and I hope I'm not boring you with some of these details, but... You walk over the hill and you come down and you're looking to see Damascus there. And historians tell you that it was like gold, uh, like pearls cast on a carpet of emeralds. The buildings made out of marble, white marble. Beautiful pasture land. And you walk over that hill and you come back down and you see Damascus there. And, and the, like, it looked like these little uh, little houses and, and buildings looked like marble uh, cascading upon an emerald carpet. Just beautiful, they say. And here He comes. He's walking down the road on His way to Damascus. And all of a sudden, He has an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, I did, I did this to, to, to get in your mind the man. To get in your mind the man where He is in His thinking and in His culture and His background. God has got His hand on Him. The Bible says as He journeyed, verse 3, He came near to Damascus to the synagogues. Now, are y'all here? He's drawn near to the synagogue. He's got those letters in hands that authorize Him to take those that name the name of Jesus back and and to kill them. And the synagogues all over the world are in alignment with the high priest in Jerusalem. What the high priest says in Jerusalem, all the synagogues all over the world have to abide by it. So they are supporting Caiaphas. Now, poor Caiaphas. Think about Caiaphas. He's already had to do with Peter and John and the lame man that was healed. I mean, these Christians, they just keep popping up everywhere, you know. So Caiaphas has given him authorization to go and take these Christians 150 miles away, bring them back to Jerusalem to persecute them and kill them. And the police force of the Sanhedrin is walking behind him. And then all of a sudden, The Bible tells us, as He's on His way to Damascus, suddenly there shined round about Him a light from heaven. Suddenly. See, God saw Him, and God stopped Him by His glory, and God is going to save the man, and God's going to strengthen the man. He saw Him, stopped Him, saved Him, and strengthened Him. The Bible says all of a sudden, Going along here. See, the only way God can stop this man is not by killing him. See, that's what got back into the will of the, will of the man here. But the way He can stop him is by saving the man. <laughs> He'll do that. He can do that. He can intervene to save the man. And He's the only one that can save the man. Are y'all here right now? Because He's full of His religion and He believes He's walking in the light. But all of a sudden, this light that He's been walking in is starting to turn to darkness. And as He walks on His way to Damascus, the church in, in Damascus, here, they know He's coming. They know He's coming to persecute them. They know He's coming to kill some of them. They know He's coming to take them, drag them off, literally drag them out of their houses by their heels to Jerusalem. The Bible says, suddenly there shine round about Him a light from heaven. Isn't that awesome? He knew as soon as that light from heaven hit Him that it was not the sunlight... Because when it hit him, it hit him in the noonday. And the Bible says the light that hit him was brighter than the noonday sun. So that Saul would know that it wasn't natural light that hit him. Saul knew it was more than natural light of the sun shining on his bald head. Nothing wrong with having a bald head, by the way. He knew this light was the Shekinah glory of God. He knew it. And this Shekinah glory of God takes him to his knees. He falls out under the Spirit. Well, you say, I like that. I like for somebody to lay hands on me. And (laughs) you better think twice about that. Because. in the Word of God, people who fell out like this were in rebellion against God. So you better think twice before you just go, whoo. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I'm telling you that if you go down, we might look at you and say, hmm, when not they been in rebellion against God? When he went down, he went down because he was in rebellion against Jesus Christ. He was in rebellion against God Almighty. He was fighting God. didn't even know it. When he was cussing them, he was cursing his own head. He didn't, even, he didn't know it. He thought he was doing God a service. So the Bible tells us, struck down by the glory of God, the light of God. And he knows it. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He heard this voice. The light of heaven coming upon him. This voice, Saul, Saul, names it twice. Samuel, Samuel. you with me? Go through the Word of God and see how many times God. Abraham, Abraham. Samuel, Samuel. Saul, Saul. Every time God brought a double denunciation of deity. You with me? He said, I am. that I am to Moses. He said, Abraham, Abraham, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul. Double annunciation. Whenever God does that, you know God's getting ready to do something in the earth. He's fixing to change something in the earth. What's in the heavens and what's in the earth? Saul, Saul. Saul. I've already called your name Saul in the heavens once. Now I'm calling your name in the earth. The double annunciation of deity. He said, I'm fixing to bring something to a change. I'm fixing to change the direction of this church. Up to this point, it's been Samaria, Judea. Are y'all with me? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. But I'm fixing to send you as an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm fixing to change it. My hand has been upon you from birth. You have been stamped by the Greek culture. You have been stamped by the Hebrew culture. You've been stamped by the Roman culture. You can speak Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. Oh, hallelujah. You're ready now. You're ready now. I've had my hand on you. I've been dealing with you since Stephen was stoned. I've been dealing with you. And every believer you tried to get to blaspheme me, every one of them put you under conviction. Brought him to his knees. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? I thought he was persecuting the church. Jesus said, Why are you persecuting me? Because when you persecute the church of Jesus Christ, you're persecuting Him. Because He's the head and the church is His body. And every wound, every blow, every pain, everything those people went through, Jesus felt it when they suffered for Him. He felt that. He entered into their sorrow. He entered into that persecution. He entered into that pain. Every blow, He felt every blow. He felt Every curse word. He felt it. It hit Jesus. It didn't just hit the church. It hit him. And he felt it. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Can you imagine right now? This man surrounded by the glory of God. This man with his phylactery on his forehead and his Talit around his shoulders. On his knees struck down by the power and the glory of God Almighty. And this voice tells him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul says, who art thou, Lord? Who is this voice that's speaking to me from the heavens? Who art thou, Lord? He had never asked that question Before in his life, this is the first time that he will ever answer that question or ask this question. They were so careful about using the name of the Lord that they used the term kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God because they did not want to pronounce the name of God wrongly because they believed that they pronounced the name of God wrongly that it would bring a curse upon them. So they said the kingdom of heaven. That's why you read in the book of Matthew, the term kingdom of heaven is used in relationship to the Jews. They didn't want to mispronounce the name of God. Who art thou, Yahweh? Who is this voice that's coming from the heavens? The glory of God is upon me. Who are you? Now, when you say, who art thou, Lord? That is the equivalent of saying, Who are you, Yahweh? Who is this? Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. <laughs> who, who are you, God? He would never ask this question. He's never asked it before. Now He's asking this question. Who art thou, Lord? Who is this, Yahweh? Who is this? Who is this talking to me? I hear this voice. It's coming from the heavens. And the Bible said... And the Lord said, I am Jesus. Wow. Oh, hallelujah. Ooh. Glory to God. So he hears the voice. He hears the word of the voice. And he sees, are y'all with me? No doubt when he, when he heard Stephen pray. I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God. I see the heavens open and I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Oh, that stuck with him. That stuck with him. Now, he has a vision of this same Jesus that Stephen saw in the heavens. Now, Saul is having the same kind of vision. He sees Jesus. He hears the voice of the Lord. Oh, God is good. Now, The Bible says that the police force that were with him, the Bible says they saw the light, but they didn't see the man. They didn't see Jesus. They saw the light, but they didn't see Jesus. And the Bible says they heard a voice, but they didn't hear the word the voice said. Paul did. Paul saw Jesus standing in the glory of God, and the glory of God in him. Are uh, you with me right now? He saw Jesus standing in the glory of God and the glory of God in Him. He heard the voice, but not just the voice, but the words of the voice. There are a lot of people today that are just like those people that were with Saul that day. They hear a voice, but they can't hear the Word of God. They see the light. But they don't discern the nearness of God in the place. Oh hallelujah to the Lamb. Oh, praise God. I so, saw this Sanhedrin Sanhedrin police force they the Bible says hear the voice another place they see the light if you take all the accounts together but they don't hear the word nor that is, do they see Jesus Saul sees the Lord and he hears the words of the voice there's no contradiction in the word of God how many of you when you come to church you don't just hear a voice you hear God I'm not talking about me I'm talking about God You don't just hear a voice, but you hear the Word of God. I hear the Word of God. Yeah, some people go to church, all they hear is a voice. They don't hear what's being said. They just hear a voice. They're like these people who followed Saul. When I come to church, I don't want to just hear a voice. I want to hear what the voice is saying. I want to hear the Word of God. Now, when I come to church, I don't want to, just, you know, witness, the light or the glory of God. I want to discern the Lord is in the house. Jesus is here right now. Give the Lord some praise in the house. Oh, hallelujah. How about you? When you come to church, you don't want to just hear a voice. You want to hear the word of God. I heard God word. God talked to me. I know God talked to me. Oh, give him praise in the house giving praise in the house hallelujah to the Lamb now I thank God you know I didn't have no experience like Saul did but the other day when I was walking down the highway I mean the glory of God didn't hit me knock me down to the ground because I'm not rebelling against Jesus Christ but I did hear him say I have redeemed you from the curse of the law being made a curse for you I did hear God say that it wasn't just a voice I knew it was God talking to me hallelujah to the Lamb Don't just come to church and hear a voice and don't hear the Word of God. Don't just come to church and say, well, I think He was there. Find Him. No, He's there. Jesus is in the midst of His body. He's in the midst of the church. So how many people there are like those? They come and hear a voice, but they don't hear the Word. And they might, yeah, I think Jesus is here, but they never find Him. They never discern that God was there. I'm telling you, He's here right now. And so this is what's happened to this man. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Who are you? You're telling me you are Jesus. I said, who art thou, Lord? I know this is the glory of God shining on me. Uh, and now you're saying that you are Jesus jesus is the lord jesus is the yahweh of the old testament jesus is the god that i think i'm serving you see now watch this up to this point he thinks he's been walking in light now all of a sudden he's this confusion that's beginning to get a hold of him this conviction is getting a hold of him now the true light hits him and knocks him to the ground and he's more confused than ever his mind is full of confusion. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecuted. Oh, the confusion increases. Because the very ones, the very one that he has been uh, uh, fighting against, that he set himself as an enemy against Jesus Christ, he's now finding out that he is the Messiah and that he is the Lord, that he is God himself. Oh, this is amazing! And all of a sudden, this man—they, the people around him, hear him talking. They hear him talking. And they hear him say, "Who art thou, Lord?" And and they hear a voice, "I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest." But they don't hear what the voice said. But they 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 just they know the light has come on Saul, and they know there's a voice there. Uh, and then all of a sudden, they hear this man Paul talking. Uh, to the voice in the sky. And not only that, when he gets up from the ground, he's blind from the glory of God. And by the way, God will heal him of that blindness. And I don't think partially. I think totally healed him. I don't think he walked around from that day with pus in his eyes. I believe that God healed him Totally. But here this man is, he's babbling. He's lost his mind. He's crazy. He's got some kind of psychological conversion here. He he really didn't hear Jesus tell him this. He really didn't see the Lord. Oh, come on. This What's wrong with Paul? Something psychological is happening here. He's having a psychological breakdown. Some of you, when they see what God has done in your life, they think you need to go to a psychiatrist. They we need to examine you psychologically. Well, not because you were converted. We need to examine you psychologically for other reasons. <laughs> Thank God you were converted. I hate to know you before you were converted, man. Oh, I told one brother in the church the other day. I said, "Well, I need to do exploratory surgery on your brain." That's what I told him. I said, "We need to. Do, I need to. I said, I need to do exploratory surgery on your brain." He said, "We're going to do get rid of the, the, the parts that aren't used." I said, "No, I'm going to get rid of the ones that are used." <laughs> Some people will tell you the Apostle Paul had a psychological breakdown here. That it wasn't a real conversion. I tell you, it's a real conversion because nobody could do what he did in the world if it wasn't a real, genuine conversion. Did did I offend y'all? Bless your sweet little heart. I didn't mean to offend you with anything I said. Hallelujah. I've already told you, I've asked God to examine me. If you just get honest with yourself. Some... you know. Anyway, Lord Jesus help me today. You know the most dangerous people are the ones that don't think they're crazy. The ones that'll tell you I'm not crazy. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing wrong with me. (laughs) (laughs) Hallelujah. Okay, all right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, I got you. (laughs) Anyway, let me get back to the word of God. So he gets up, you know, and he's just ran, he's babbling some stuff, and he's talking, and the people that are with him, you we're know, we gonna do this crazy. What happened? Look at this guy, man. What are we gonna do with this? He's all babbling, talking les's he Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is God, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. Wow. Confusion. What do I do with this now? You know. I mean, now listen to me, church, when he was struck down by the glory of God and he hears the voice of the Lord. Saul, so, so why persecutest thou me? So, who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. He's not saved. Just because you had the glory of God come on you, and just because you hear God talk to you, doesn't mean you're saved. Some people think any experience they have with God equals salvation. It doesn't. And this police force of the Sanhedrin takes him to Damascus, you know. Say, Amen. Oh yeah, And for three days he neither eats nor drinks. He's blind. He can't see. More confusion. He's not just blind physically. He's blind spiritually. He's blind emotionally. His eyes have been veiled. He's got a veil over his eyes like all of the Jews who read the Old Testament but cannot see Jesus in that Old Testament. Their eyes are covered with a veil so they cannot see. Now the veil is on the eyes of this man Saul." He couldn't find Jesus in the Old Testament. He had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the the grand master of theology. But when he heard Stephen preach, Stephen brought a new light on that Old Testament that he had never seen before. Stephen was saying things uh, that he had never seen before even though he sat at the master's feet, Gamaliel. He had never seen it like that. He had never heard anybody preach like Stephen that day. uh. And this has been in his mind, this has been in his spirit the whole time. Uh, He said things about Jesus, he said things about the Old Testament. I didn't learn at the feet of Gamaliel, the Master. Hallelujah! The the top seven uh, uh, Rabbons of Israel. I never heard anything like this before. And so now he is not only blind physically, he is a picture of Judaism veiled. Paul is a type of Israel. Israel is today blinded by a veil over their eyes so that when they read the Bible, they don't see Jesus. He's a type of the conversion of Israel. There's coming a time when the veil that is on the face of Israel will be lifted off and they will see Jesus is the Messiah, the one that they're rejecting today. He is a miniature Israel coming into the kingdom. So now... He's not only veiled, I'm telling you, he's not saved yet. So confusion has gripped his mind. Darkness is enveloped in his heart. His religion, he thinks about it. Oh, Jesus is the Lord. Oh, but that's going to contradict what I believe and the struggles going on back and forth within him. And at that time, the Lord gives a vision to a man by the name of Ananias, We've already had Ananias and Sapphira. This is another Ananias in the Bible. Ananias in Damascus, a believer, who knew that Paul was coming down to persecute the church. God gives him a vision. And when the Lord appears to him in a vision, Annas acts like it's no big deal. I want you to see it. The Bible says, Phew, Verse 10, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision. Ananias, he said, behold, I am here, Lord. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Lord appears to him in a vision. Ananias, uh, uh, yeah, Lord, what do you want? I'm here. I'm, I'm your servant. I'm here. He act like it's no big deal that the Lord gave him a vision. You know, people today, if they get a vision from God, i got a vision. Oh, can I write it down? Can I tell you? Can I put it in a book? Preacher. Uh, Pastor, can, will you tell the whole church I had a vision? I, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, here we go, go, go. No, 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 no. In that New Testament, when they had visions from God, it was just a normal, everyday thing. So when, they, when he received this vision from the Lord, he like no big deal. Yeah, Lord, hey, just like he's talking to his friend. Hallelujah! Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the street, which is called straight, and inquire in the house of Judas. For one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. They took him to the house of Judas. And there he was in that house. He hadn't eaten for three days, drink water for three days, and he's over there praying. And God talks to Ananias, and he says, I want you to go pay a visit to a man named Saul of Tarsus. Who? Saul of who? Saul of Tarsus. You mean that one that's been persecuting the church in Jerusalem that's coming up here 150 miles from Jerusalem is going to drag us back to Jerusalem and kill us? You're talking about that man? Unexpected salvation. Salvation. That man saw that wicked, evil man, the enemy of Jesus Christ. You want, now the Lord is appearing to him and telling him to go visit that man, the persecutor of the church. Oh, you can, you can imagine. What if God uh, told you to go visit, uh, Stalin? God appeared to you and said, uh, Stalin's gonna be a born again believer. Stalin's, of course, long gone. I'm just going back in history here. But if, if, if the Lord came to you and said, I want you to go visit Stalin because Stalin's gonna, Gonna be a, a gonna be a believer. He's gonna be a Christian, and, oh, um, and brother, so and so is more qualified. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get get you to see. How you here with me today, or maybe maybe uh, uh, the the Korean leader, or some Arab that is a uh, you know against Christianity. To kill you, you know, just take your head off. All right, you get a vision from God. Okay, okay, God wants you to go talk to this person like that. That's what we're talking about here. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And Ananias is not an apostle. He's not a prophet. He's not an evangelist. He's not a pastor. He's not a teacher. He's just an everyday believer, just like you. He's not a former preacher standing behind a pulpit. He's just a saint in the church, just like you. And he doesn't say, Lord, I wish you'd call Peter or John. They're apostles. They're more qualified for this one, you know. No, I'm calling you Ananias. Just an everyday, if you will, normal disciple to go and preach to this man Saul. Okay, go there to the house of Judas. He's praying right now. So you can just see Ananias, right? Ananias knocks, goes to the front door, puts his ear to the door. Yeah, he's praying. Thank God for that. God got it right on that. He's praying, y'all yeah, hear him? You know? Oh, come on, y'all act so pious. Yeah, I could do it. See, here I am. Send me. Like that, you're talking to a little kid. And you're going, Jesus loves you. See so you got to get into the story. You you have to get into the story. You got to put yourself into this event right here to know what's happening. So anyway Oh, yeah, he's... Pr- all right, yeah, all right. Praise the Lord. Okay, we we got that down. He, he's praying. Yeah, Saul of Tarsus, and verse 12, And has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming to him. Oh, so now God is not only working on Ananias' side by giving him a vision and telling him to go and talk to this man. God is working on Saul's side. God gives Ananias uh, Saul a vision. Ananias is coming to see me. Now can you imagine that? If you had a vision and somebody coming to see you, they hadn't made it to your house yet, and you have a vision, he's coming to see you, and but at the same time you're having a vision, this man comes to see you, he's standing at your front door. Wow. wow. Isn't God good? Woo. Amazing. So God is working on both sides. He's working on Saul's side and He's working on Ananias' side to bring this man to conversion. When we go out and witness, you go out and witness, remember this, it's not just you talking. God's been working on them for a long time. In case you don't know it, there's a pre-illumination to salvation. Paul went through that pre-illumination to salvation. You understand what I'm telling you? Every person he saw die for Jesus Christ. When he saw Stephen die, and he heard Stephen pray, and he heard Stephen preach, that was all a pre-illumination to his salvation. Coming in contact with somebody or having a dream before you're saved. That's a pre-illumination to salvation. Every one of you had a pre-illumination to salvation. You rubbed shoulders with somebody that was in your family possibly that was already in the church. That was a pre-elimination to your salvation. I see what God has... I see what this... You would say this religion. You would have said it in that day. I see what this religion has done for my family. But it's not a religion, but that's what you would have said. I see what that religion has done for my family. Oh, and so that was a pre illumination to salvation. When you saw what God did in them, that was a pre illumination to your salvation. Or maybe God sent you a dream that you missed the rapture of the church. That was a pre-elimination to salvation. You were going through, you were walking through life and you were convicted. There was a contradiction inside of you. There was turmoil on the inside of you. Your religion was telling you you were okay. But on the other hand, you knew what you saw in them. They had more than what you had and now not only that but you're having dreams and all this and there's a great warfare going on on the inside of you your religion trying to win but you know what the truth is and oh, and some of you are just went, oh I hope my husband sees it too because I'm seeing it now I'm seeing it God put this person in my life and that situation that circumstance God brought me to Odessa, Texas He used that event to bring me to Odessa, Texas I wouldn't even be in Odessa, Texas if that hardship hadn't hit me that problem hadn't hit me but God had his hand on you from birth the people you came in contact with the circumstances you found yourself in even finding yourself in Odessa Texas was all set up by God from your birth Uh, give the Lord praise Uh, some of you saw Brothers and sisters that are in the church now, you saw them in school and thought they were crazy. Now you're part of them. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But you see, way back in high school, when you saw that Pentecostal brother or that Pentecostal sister, way back there, you know, well, there's something unique about them. I don't understand something different about them, and that stayed with you through your life. Are y'all with me right now? Give the Lord some praise, Hallelujah! God was using all the circumstances. You got sick and tired of religion. It had not done anything for you or your family. It hadn't brought salvation to you. Hadn't delivered you from addictions. Hadn't changed your life. And all of a sudden you come in contact with a real Christianity. With a real church. So God used all of these circumstances, all these people, all of these situations, these dreams that you had. All of this is coming against you. Or not coming against you, but it's coming to you. The conviction, the turmoil, the darkness. At one time, you thought you were walking in light. At one time, you thought you were saved. And all of a sudden, you find out you're not even saved. And a great conflict begins to work inside of you. I don't want to go to that church, but God's got your number. I don't want to be a part of Him, but but God's got your number. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. And you fought it and you kicked it. You said no and you said never. But God's got your number. Woo, I feel called. Everything Paul had witnessed, everything he had seen. It was dealing with him. It brought confusion in his mind. Ah, when you saw Stephen die, you know you should have considered what he was saying. You know you should have listened to what he was saying. And you know that you should have become a part of them. But that contradiction was on the inside of you. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. that, that soul right here. So God used all of this as a pre-illumination to His salvation. A striking Him down to the ground by the light. A pre-illumination to salvation. A voice coming to Him. Why persecutest thou me so? Hallelujah to the Lamb. Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. This voice, this word, this encounter with God is all a pre-illumination to salvation. The man. Still not saved. Give the Lord praise in the house. In fact, the further along he goes, the more confusion he's got and the more darkness he's walking in. The light that he was walking in has now turned to darkness. He is confused. He's in a contradiction. He knows he should listen. He knows what he's heard, but he's not completely in understanding. And so now God has got to send a disciple to Him named Ananias to show Him the truth. I don't want religion from you, Saul. Religion will not do it for you. Salvation is only in the name of Jesus. And you have been, as the Bible says, you have been, verse 2 of chapter 9, you have been going after these people, the Bible says, of this way. The people of this way. These people are not called Christians yet. Christians were called Christians first by the Gentile world or the unbelievers. Peter later took up the term Christian and applied it in a positive sense to Christian, Christianos. Are y'all with me right now? But at this point, they're not called Christians. Christian, the term Christian was used by the unbelievers with a slur. These are the Christians. It was a negative thing at the beginning. So these people were called the people of this way. Why are they called the people of the way? Because they are the people that can get into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. The blood of the new covenant can get them into the Holy of, Hol- Holy of Holies. Hallelujah. Give the Lord praise. These are the people on the highway of holiness. Isaiah 35, I believe, it talks about a highway of holiness. Where people will be dancing and praising God on the highway of holiness. These people are the people of the way into the holy of holies. A new way. Not by blood sacrifice of animals. Not by an ironic priesthood. But by a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek and by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the way into the Holy of Holies. And these people are on the highway of holiness. And these people follow the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the light. These are the people of the way. And they can show you how to get in this church. They can show you the way to be baptized in Jesus' name. They can show you the way into the water! They can show you the way to get filled with the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues. They can show you the way into forgiveness. They can show you the way into the church they can show you the way into the Kingdom of God they can show you the way to be forgiven the way to be saved they can show you the way into the water the way to be baptized the way to get the Holy Ghost the way to live these are the people of the way! Give the Lord praise. Woo! God's working on both sides. He needs this disciple to show him the way. So the Scripture said He works on Ananias' side, sending him to Saul, works on Saul's side to prepare him for the witness of Ananias. The Bible says, Ananias says, we know He's come from the chief priest." Verse 14, to bind all that call on Thy name. All that call on thy name. Say praise the Lord. Throughout this chapter, you're going to see the name, the name, the name, the name, the name. To bind all those that call upon thy name. Now watch this. Verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. What's he going to do? He's going to bear my name. He's fixing to get baptized in Jesus' name. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. All right, he's going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He's going to preach this gospel to the Gentiles. See, God's fixing to change what the focus is. It's going to be on Gentiles all over the world through this man, the Apostle Paul. He'll also preach to Israel because he's going to synagogues. Now, I want to. And the kings, rulers, world rulers will hear this man preach. Verse 16. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. He's going to suffer for the name. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. God has sent me. Are y'all here with me? That you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. This is not an apostle. This is not a prophet, evangelist, pastor, or teacher. This is a believer in Christ. It's a person of the body of Christ, just like you, going in there and laying hands on somebody that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. You know why he said that? I know I'm talking fast. The reason he said that is because the veil that's on your eyes is fixing to fall off. And you're going to see Jesus in that Old Testament. And you're going to see Him as the only way to be saved. And so He's going to, this man, Ananias, a normal believer, is going to lay hands on Him. The scales are going to fall off His eyes. He's no longer going to be blind physically or blind spiritually. He will see. Hallelujah. He's going to see the light. That contradiction, that confusion, that darkness that has now enveloped his soul is going to change. So he said, You're going to, re- that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Why did Ananias, and I know you're getting tired because I'm being lengthy, but why did Ananias say that you might receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost? Because in Ananias' mind, there is no such thing as a person coming into Christ without receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen. He didn't get together with Saul and say, oh, hey, I heard about that experience you had on the Damascus Road, you know. Light, I heard the void. Oh, you must be saved. Man, anybody that has that kind of... No, that was a pre-illumination to his salvation. So Ananias goes in and says, oh, oh, yeah, he, you need the Holy Ghost. Because there's no no such thing as a person coming into Christ who had not been filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking with other tongues. Ananias knew no such thing or no such animal in that New Testament church. You hear what I'm telling you? Do you believe what I'm preaching to you? I know you hear what I'm telling you but do do you believe what I'm preaching to you? Do you believe what I'm preaching to you? Most time, you get together with some people you say, oh, hey, hey, brother, praise the Lord. They're not born again believers. They've had pre-illuminations of salvation. They've had experiences with God and we're not going to take that away from them. But they are not believers until they have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking with other tongues. Ananias knew that. Do you know that? If you do, I want you to lift your hands as a a public testimony to what you believe. Lift your hand high. I'm looking for it. A public testimony. You believe what I just said. that Without being filled with the Holy Ghost, you cannot come into Christ. I want to see your hand. Okay. say Alright, you can drop them. You have to give a public testimony. There's no such thing. We're not going to have the secret, the secret disciples in this church. You will make a public declaration of what you believe in this house. Say amen. Amen. It's not just going to be your preacher that will declare the Word of God to you. You are going to have to make a public declaration publicly before God. Because if you're ashamed of Him, He will be ashamed of you. Don't play games with this preacher and don't play games with God Almighty. You either believe it or you're not. You're either saved or you're not. No such thing as half saved. No such thing. You are either saved or you're not. And if you don't believe what this Bible says about the new birth, you can't win anybody to God. Because mm-hmm. you're going to talk about their religion and how religious they are. Now. Oh, hey, yeah, no, 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 no. This is what the Bible says. Okay? I appreciate, ex- I, I, I appreciate what you've experienced, but this is what you need. Amen. So Ananias, he, he walked in there. He knew what he had to bring Saul. He had to bring Saul. He could heal him by the power of God. And he was going to see that this man is filled with the Holy Ghost. But that's not it. That's not all. Because Jesus has already told him he's going to bear my name to the Gentiles. And he's going to suffer for my name's sake. Now watch. I want you to see this. So the Bible says, verse 18, Immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. He received sight forth and arose and was what? baptized no such thing as a New Testament believer entering into Jesus Christ without being filled with the Holy Ghost and being water baptized in Jesus name no such thing and Ananias knew that well how do you know he's baptized in Jesus name Acts twenty two sixteen when he gives his testimony Look at it. I'll show it to you. Make up your mind one way or the other. You're going to be charismatic? You're going to be charismatic? You're going to be religious? Are you going to be in the church of Jesus Christ? Make up your mind. Acts 22.16 Verse 16, And now why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. You want to know what Ananias told him? said, I've come that you might be healed and that you might be filled with the Holy Ghost. And the Bible says he was baptized. Acts twenty-two sixteen. 16, out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul, he said, Ananias told him, arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. No such thing in that New Testament church of anybody being in Christ without being filled with the Holy Ghost and being baptized in Jesus' name. And I thank God today for the truth. I'm not a Protestant. I'm not a Catholic. I'm in the church of Jesus Christ. So, pre illumination. So everybody here had a pre illumination salvation. Before I was saved, I had dreams, the rapture t- took place, and I was left behind. It scared me to death. God working on me. Went to went to work. In those days, I worked for a place called Area Rig, building a, a rig fabrications and fabricator. And I went to work. And in those days, God dealing with me, having dreams like that I missed the rapture of the church. And, and me and my friends would start talking about the Lord. We was all, I'm not going to get into all the details, but we weren't in the condition. I tell you, if we died, we'd be in hell. But we'd start talking about God. And I'd hear on the radio, we were going to lunch and i hear a guy talking about the coming of Jesus. And it scared me to death because I knew I wasn't ready. And I'd be working there and all of a sudden, and I remember in the book of Revelation, these locusts with these tails like scorpions. Long hair, the hair of a woman, you know. I remember those, and the Bible says they would strike men and they would suffer five months and they could not die. They pled for death, but they could not die. And you know, that's, one, that's a pre-illumination for me. God put that verse in my mind. And I thought about those scorpions striking people and not being able to die. And that in the tribulation period, they would strike me and I would not be able to die. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking about this. Here comes a locust fly into the the shop. And he flew around me and he flew around me and he flew around. I kid you not, I couldn't get rid of that locust. You might think that's crazy. I call it a pre-illumination of salvation. I'm thinking about a locust that's going to sting me and I can't die. For five months I'm going to suffer and all of a sudden here comes a locust. <sighs> to make a long story short, I had pre-illumination salvation. Salvation is not instant. There is no such thing as instant salvation. There is a time that every one of you go through a pre-illumination to Salvation. And then comes your conversion. And that's what happened to Paul. He went through all of these experiences. But now he's a born-again believer in the church. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. I'm almost done. Greatest conversion in all the history, I believe. Y'all get it? Did you get it? Did you get it? So you'll see it over and over and over. Nobody. Nobody entered into Christ Jesus without this new birth experience. Aren't you thankful that you have? I love it with all my heart, brothers and sisters. You can tell that by the way I preach it. I love it. I don't just preach it. I believe it. There's a lot of people that preach things they don't believe. But I, I don't just preach it. I believe what I'm telling. That's why I ask you, do you believe it? Just because you got your Bible in hand and you start telling people about it, don't mean you even believe it. You can preach it and not believe it. I preach it and I believe it too. I believe what I'm preaching to you. Hallelujah to the Lamb. How about you though? Verse 19 After his being filled with the Holy Ghost and being baptized, he's a Jesus name believer now. When he received me, he was strengthened, then was saw certain days of the disciples which were Damascus. Now can you imagine? I'm a, I promise you I'm almost done. But I find it almost humorous it, on one side, and on the other side I, I find it terrifying. Here comes this man that maybe one of your brothers or sisters was killed by this man. And here he comes and sits down beside you in church. And the Bible already tells us they were doubting his conversion. They thought he was a spy. Okay? So they don't they don't believe. the church doesn't believe at the beginning that he's for real. So he comes and sits down on the church pew beside you and maybe he killed one of your brothers and sisters. You're looking at this guy. Now, you probably wouldn't do it, but maybe some of them, they got up and went to the back of the church. Just get away from him or went out the door. But just think about it. This man is a born-again believer, baptized in his name, and filled with the Holy Ghost. Just like you. Can you imagine what it must have been like when he walked in the church of Damascus there and he sat down on 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 the front row? It's all brand new to him. And they see, he sees the minister Get bread and the fruit of the vine and distribute it to the body. Can you imagine as He saw the fruit of the vine and the bread being distributed to the body? what he, he He's going, what meaneth this? What is this bread and what is this fruit of the vine that's being distributed to the body? This is the Lord's Supper. It commemorates His death and broken body. It's the blood of a new covenant. Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant. His blood is the way into the holiest of all. Wow. What that... What is it? is it? Because see, now, with all of His education, all of His rabbinic training, all of His training in Greek culture, and as a Roman citizen, He's sitting on a pew as a Baby. He can't even say, da <laughs> He's completely a baby. He's a little baby in Christ. Wow. And he doesn't even... He doesn't... Oh, he's just been baptized. He's got the Holy Ghost. That's all he knows. And, oh, these people are so different. Man. No sacrifices and no temple and blood fruit of the vine and bread being distributed as emblems of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Wow. New covenant days. And he's sitting there and the church is suspicious. He's a spy. And he's a baby and he's wondering what the of this? And he's looking around and, and the people sitting next to him. This newborn baby in Christ they don't have a clue that he's going to write over half the New Testament. They don't have a clue that he will be the greatest apostle that ever walked the earth. They don't have a clue that the stamp of Greek culture and Hebrew culture and his Roman citizen and all of his training and everything from a baby God had his hand on this man. they, They don't realize who's sitting on the pew next to them. Would the God, some of you, would be an Ananias that would win the next greatest apostle the world has ever seen? That, that that man would reach the nations. God could use you. Could use you. And so he's sitting there, you know. He's learning what he can. He starts preaching. He's got the preacher on him, you know. He starts preaching there in Damascus. And the Bible says, look at it. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Messiah. He got stronger and stronger and stronger. His understanding increased. He's full of the Spirit of God. He's already got the call of God in his life. Ananias has already told him what he's going to do. He's now he's going, he's preaching to the Jews in Damascus. He's telling them the Messiah has come. Jesus is the Lord. I'm a part of his body now. Can you imagine what the synagogue in Damascus must have felt like? You know, the synagogue that was against Christianity. This now, this man, Paul, who was authorized to persecute these believers, now he's a part of them. He left the synagogue and went to the church down the street. He left that religion and went to the church down the street. He's become a part of the very ones he was fighting. He has become a part of the very ones he spoke against. He's, come, he's become a part of the very ones he cussed. Can you imagine the synagogue, how they must have felt when they lost Paul? Can you imagine poor Caiaphas over in Jerusalem? The man who gave Paul the authorization to go and bind Christians and to persecute them—can you imagine, Caiaphas? He gets word back there in Jerusalem that his number one Gestapo man is a believer in Jesus Christ. <laughs> you just gotta say, poor Caiaphas, a poor Caiaphas man. Now even his gest- number one Gestapo man is a believer. <laughs> He's preaching in Damascus. Wow. Now, this is not an autobiography of Paul. So right there at the end of verse 22, it says where he was proven in Damascus that Jesus was the very Christ. Now you've got to insert Galatians 1.17. Because at that point, he leaves Damascus and he goes to Arabia. Are y'all with me? And they're in Arabia. What's in Arabia? Would somebody stand and read it for me. Okay? Will you read it for me? See, you've got to go to Galatians. You've got to get some, some other things to fill in the biography. Galatians one seventeen. Start with 15. Start with 15. Brother Eloy, read it. Well, when please God who me from my womb, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by His grace, by His grace to, reveal His to reveal His Son in me. Look at that. Look at that. Okay, stop right there, please. He left Damascus. He goes into Arabia and then he returns back to Damascus. The reason why he went into Arabia because Arabia was where Mount Sinai was located. That was where the giving of the law took place. That's where Moses received the law from God. That's where Elijah went to when he was discouraged on the backside of a desert in a cave there. That's where Elijah was. And so now this man who was zealous for the law, the Mosaic law, now this man's gonna to go to the very place where the law was given. And God is gonna give him a revelation of Jesus Christ on every page of the Old Testament. Why is he going to Arabia? Because he's got to get his marbles right. He's got to get his mind right. He's got to get his understanding right. He's got to get training from God. And just like Jesus appeared to the disciples along the road, and He taught them from Genesis. He taught them through Genesis, and the Psalms, and the Prophets, etc. Those things that concerned Him. The same thing happened with Paul. God got him alone up there in Arabia. He didn't confer with flesh and blood. God revealed it to him. God took him just like he did those other disciples and showed him from Genesis to Malachi. Jesus on every page. Jesus on every scripture. He got his marbles together. He got his mind together. He got—he has experience, but now he needs content. He's got experience, but now he needs content. He needs to understand the Word of God, in the light of this new revelation. Oh, hallelujah. Not in the light of Gamaliel or the rabbinic teachers, but in the light of this new revelation, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So he goes over to Arabia, he gets this revelation from God, and from there, according to the Word of God, he goes back to Damascus, right? Okay, so go back over to Acts 9 and let's look at it. At the end of 22, He leaves Damascus, goes to Arabia, verse 23, and after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill Him. You with me? This is after many days after He's come back from Arabia, after many days of being in Damascus again after that, now the Jews are going to try to kill Him. So the Bible says the disciples put Him in a basket, put Him in a basket, and let Him down to the wall, and He flees to Jerusalem. Right? Right? wonder what He does when He gets to Jerusalem. The Bible says that when He was come to Jerusalem, He essayed to join Himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of Him and believed not that He was a disciple. Nobody wants Him. The church doesn't want Him. You know, and Caiaphas don't want Him for sure. Synagogue doesn't want Him. Church doesn't want Him. He's a man, you know, with no place. He's a man with no place. Church is afraid of Him. He's in Jerusalem now. What does He do? The Bible says, the verse 27, but Barnabas, remember that son of consolation? Barnabas took Him and brought Him to the apostles and declared unto them how He had seen the Lord in the way and that He had spoken to them and how He had preached boldly in Damascus in the name of Jesus. And He was with them coming in and going out. Jerusalem and spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed, there we go, debated against the Grecians, but they went about to slay Him. Did you catch that? He walks right back into Jerusalem, and He disputes with the Hellenistic Jews, those Greek-speaking Jews. This is the same group of people that He was a part of when He gave His voice to the stoning of Stephen. He goes back to the same synagogue now, and He's a part of this company of believers that he persecuted. And now he begins to debate with these people just like Stephen debated with him. It's coming full circle. What he's doing, he's going to take up where Stephen left off. If Stephen hadn't been put to death, it's possible that Stephen would have been the greatest apostle that had ever lived. And because Stephen died, God said, I'm going to use your death to bring in an apostle named Paul who will be the greatest apostle and he will take up where you left off and he will debate just like you debated. He'll talk just like you talked. And then later on, about 26 years from this time, he'll die just like Stephen died. Only he'll be beheaded in Rome. He martyred Stephen. He'll die a martyr. It'll come full circle, brother. Eloy Reed, from where you were. This is the gives you the whole story. So he he's converted in Damascus. He preaches the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah in Damascus for a while. Goes to Arabia. Gets his mind together. Gets his content. Content from God. He goes back to Damascus for a period of time. He's preaching in the synagogues there. The Jews try to kill him. Just like he did them. Just like he did before to the Christians. And then he goes from there to Jerusalem. He's received by the apostles. They get together, if you will. They get together and they compare notes. Paul said, this is what the Lord showed me. Peter said, that's right. He didn't confer with flesh and blood. But he did get together and said, God, that's exactly right. You're right on. God showed it to you. No contradictions. You with me so far? Do you understand what I'm telling you? And then after that, he will leave Jerusalem. But I want brother to read this as we come to a close. Then after three years, I will and Okay, did you get that? He was in Damascus for a short period of time. He leaves Damascus, goes to Arabia, up into the mountain of God. He comes back to Damascus. After three years of that time frame, he goes to Jerusalem. Right? Read. Of the Paul and nuns, James, the Lord's James, James, the Lord's brother. Okay, you got together with James. Go ahead. Okay, he goes from there from Jerusalem to Syria and Salicia Oh, interesting. Keep going. It was unknown by faith unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he was persecuted us in time's past. Now the faith. Woo! Glory to God. We the faith of once he destroys. And they glorified God in him. Keep going to the next chapter. See, look at that. He said, I want to communicate communicate the gospel. I preach at the Gentiles. right, that's good, brother. Thank you. Stop. Okay, so what we have then, his conversion in Damascus. We have his going and declaring the Messiahship of Jesus Christ in Damascus. We have him going to Arabia, getting the content, the understanding of the Old Testament in new light now, the revelation of Jesus Christ. After he goes from Arabia, he goes to Damascus. He is there. The Bible tells us he's preaching there in Damascus. From there he goes to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the Bible tells us he goes and he disputes with the Greeks, the Grecians that were in Jerusalem just like Stephen did. Also, the Bible says he went to the apostles. The Scripture tells us he then leaves Jerusalem and he goes to Silesia. That's his home area. He goes back to Tarsus and Brother Eloy read it today. He was there for 14 years. 14 years. And he hasn't entered into his ultimate call yet. Now it says, stay right there in Tarsus. You know? Hey, you know that that family member? Romans 16, I believe it's verse 7. That came into the church before you, Paul. Yeah, they had something to do with your conversion. When he goes back to Tarsus, he's there for 14 years. His family's in Tarsus. His wife, I believe, is in Tarsus. What happens? What happens to him? Philippians chapter 3. I come to a close. uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is. Indeed, it's not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. He is warning this church against the Judaizers. He's warning this church against those long blue-robed Pharisees that he used to be. One preacher put it this way: You ought to get a get a sign. It says, "Beware of dogs," and pull it. Pull Philippians three two. You'll have people come to your door and say, Beware of dogs, Philippians 3.2. And then open the Bible and read it to them. Beware of dogs. <laughs> Evil workers. Beware of concision. Watch out for those long blue robe Pharisees. Amen. Amen. they tell you you still need to be circumcised in your flesh to be in part of the covenant of Jesus Christ. me. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. That doesn't mean we don't preach holiness. Okay, we're not talking about the same thing. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless, But what things I, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. He said, I count them all as lost. All. Everything he just said. I believe that when he went back to Tarsus, his wife divorced him. Oh, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You know why I believe? She divorced him because we never read about her in the New Testament pages ever. And I believe he had to be married to be a part of the Sanhedrin court. What happened to her? She must have divorced him when he got converted. He lost everything. He lost his marriage. He lost his family. Some of them came in. Some of his kinsmen came in. I don't read where mom and dad came in. He lost his wealth. He was disinherited. He was a poverty-stricken preacher, relying on the offerings of the people to take care of him. And he, and he worked with his hands making, the Bible calls him tents. It wasn't tents. It was a talit. He sold talits, prayer shelves. Lost his wealth, disinherited. Don't read about mom and dad coming to the church. His wife evidently divorced him. He said, I have lost everything. Everything. Sometimes it's hard for us to go to church for two hours. He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his wife. Everything. But he said, he didn't he wasn't down about it, wasn't depressed about it like some of you get. Mom and dad don't come to the church, or your you know, family members you get all depressed and you you about backslide over them. Not him. He said it's worth it. I've lost it all! It's worth it. Willing to give up all of that for Jesus Christ. Say, praise the Lord.
1: Oh, it's so hard to
0: live for God. Really? What have you lost? No, seriously. what have you lost? Maybe some relationships. But it's worth it. He lost it all. So he went back to Tarsus. He's there for 14 years. according to Galatians one, Galatians two, brother Eloi read, and I close now, I close. He's one of the greatest conversions. I believe probably the greatest conversion, the New Testament church. The revelation came to him. He wrote over half the New Testament. He said he went in dispute with the Grecians that went about and they went about to slay him. Verse 30. Which, when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. And the Bible says in chapter 2 of Galatians, he was there for 14 years. Oh, thank God. The chief persecutor of the church, the chief antagonist of the church, the one who compelled the church to blaspheme the name of Jesus is now part of that church. Now called by Jesus' name Himself, and now filled with the Holy Ghost, now part of the community of the Spirit Himself. And for 14 years, dwelling in Tarsus, I don't know what He did, because the Bible doesn't tell me what he did in those 14 years, but I have a feeling he was preaching. I have a feeling he went all through Cilicia, Tarsus, is preaching that Jesus is the Lord and the Messiah. Oh, thank God. He's been converted. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. There it is, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Were multiplied. And now we come to we will be coming to a new section which will see the gospel going out into the Gentile world from there. And this great man being the great apostle to the Gentiles. God had his hand on him from birth to prepare him to be that man that that would do that, do that call, fulfill that call. Only he could do it, brother. Sister, only he could do this. God prepared him. Hallelujah. Thank God for the goodness of Jesus Christ. Thank God for His mercy. Can you say that? How many of you fought God, fought Jesus' name, baptism, fought the church? Finally God got your number. And you're in it now. I thank God. I look. Saturday, Went up there and saw the brothers and sisters singing the glory of God there in the mall. And I just looked at them. And I remember where God found them. I remember the condition God found them in. And look at them today. completely changed. Singing to the glory of God. Worshiping God. Giving Him praise. And you just feel the Lord God, you know? Because it's not just the song they sing. It's the life that they have within them. They sing because they love the Lord Jesus Christ and because He's inside of them. If God could change a Paul, He could change me. If God could change Paul, He could change you. Isn't God good both of you? Aren't you glad you're in the church? Yes, sir. Yeah, you were like Paul, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, you, you... When we saw him walk through the doors, we almost had him escorted out. <laughs> we're going to let sisters stay, but him... <laughs> I'm just kidding to our guest. I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. Anyway, but we let him stay, aren't we glad?